my mom and I are driving down to Indianapolis and we're listening to WGN radio. Bulls are celebrating their championship in Grant Park. And I'm going, I can't believe I'm leaving Chicago to go to Indianapolis. The Bulls are celebrating. You know, who knew that they would become the dominant team of the 90s? It was just so surreal listening to the championship celebration and going to Indianapolis. Like, I never thought I'd leave the region, which is what they call Northwest Indiana. But, yeah, it was the best decision I'd ever made. And from then on, I was bound and determined to get Pacers fans in Northwest Indiana. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And, of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 90. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm pleased to welcome media relations veteran of the Indiana Pacers, Mary Kay Rascosi, to the show. Our conversation covers behind-the-scenes memories from Mary Kay's tenure with the Pacers. This includes, arguably, the biggest one-day sporting event of the 1990s, two words, I'm back. Mary Kay discusses the frenzy surrounding Michael Jordan's NBA return in 1995, her push to have Pacers ABA greats enshrined in the Hall of Fame, the lengths she went to in order to coordinate the Pacers' official team photo, and much more. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, will be available at inallairness.com slash 90. Now, onto the show. My guest today worked in media relations for Pacers Sports and Entertainment for 16 years and was at the epicenter of arguably the biggest one-day sporting event of the 1990s. Mary Kay Rascosi, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. Researching for our chat today, uh, I learned that you were, quote, raised on the Chicago Bulls, uh, end quote. Yes, I was. Yet you're a native of Whiting, Indiana. How did Chicago get the nod? over your home state paces when you were growing up? Well, being from Whiting, which is just right outside Chicago, just over the state line, people in Whiting, Indiana, at least some people I went to school with, didn't realize they were from Indiana. We actually all thought we were from Illinois <laughs> because that's the TV we would watch. You know, we'd get Chicago news, Chicago newspapers. So Chicago was just its home. We lived in a suburb of Chicago, even though it was in Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, so really, the Pacers weren't anything in Northwest Indiana. Very few people knew. Plus, they were from the ABA. You know, not many people knew about the ABA. I went to Ball State, which is in Muncie, Indiana, which is an hour from Indianapolis, but three hours from my hometown. I heard of the Pacers because I remember their song, Pacers Pride, Pacers Pride, the pride of Indiana. I remember hearing that in college. Yeah. I didn't really know anything about the team. It's just everybody in Northwest Indiana is just Chicago Bulls fans. It's a little different now. I hope I had a little something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> I brought the Pacers to Northwest Indiana. That's good to hear. Um, so before we chat about more to do with your time working with the Pacers and Pacers Sports and Entertainment, uh, what memories do you actually have from watching the, the Bulls when you were younger, uh, particularly when they were building towards that championship team? 
and their first win uh, in the NBA Finals in 1991. Well, I'll tell you, I graduated from Ball State in 87, and I did my internship at uh, what at the time was called Sports Channel. They aired the Bulls games, and they aired uh, the White Sox games. And I was behind the scenes uh, doing my internship, but it was in the summer, so I did mostly stuff with the White Sox. Growing up, the Bulls weren't very good, but my years, I remember them growing up of, with Artis Gilmore and Reggie Theus. And of course, I liked Reggie Theus because he was so cute. <laughs> Everybody liked Reggie Theus, you know? And so those were the two big names that I remember. I mean, there were others like Bob Love and stuff like that, I believe, as, you know, but I wasn't really into basketball. My brother, who's the one on the Pacers stack crew, he's a huge basketball fan. He knew everything about the NBA. I didn't like pro basketball, uh, but I liked the Bulls because everyone liked the Bulls. But I was more baseball, so I'm a Cubs fan. Then Jordan came. Everyone, oh my God, the Bulls. And I was on like three softball teams at that summer, ending of the season, you know, April, May. And so I was with my softball team watching. We're all going crazy because the Bulls are winning. You know, I was like, oh my God, Jordan is the best. At the time, he wasn't as good as, you know, that was his first time winning. So Jordan became Jordan two or three years after that. So he was awesome, but not as awesome as, as he became. I can remember celebrating, watching them play in the Lakers. And so, oh my God, they're going to win, you know? And I remember being with my softball team and it was great. The way I got my job with the Pacers, I actually, this is a weird story, but I liked a guy and he didn't like me. <laughs> and I was like, I need something else. I need to move away. So I promised myself, I don't know if you're Catholic, but I'm Catholic. And so for Lent, every Sunday, I would send out a resume. I promised myself, that was my Lentil sacrifice, is to send out a resume every week. So Lent was ending, and I kept doing it. And I said, okay, and I, I would look in the newspaper at the transactions, that the teams that sports transactions, because I worked at a newspaper. And I saw that the Pacers made some front office changes. I said, I'll just send my resume down there. I found the guy's name in the media guide, Dale Ratterman. I sent him a letter. I said, I want to work for pro team. I really wanted to work for the Cubs. That was my goal. First, I wanted to be a sportscaster. Then I got to college. And then I realized I wanted to work behind the scenes. And then I wanted to work for the Cubs. But I didn't have any idea what kind of job there was at the Cubs. So when I wrote Dale, I was like, I just want, you know, a job or whatever. Well, it just so happened that he was opening his own mail. I think he had let go of his, I don't know if she got fired, but his assistant, his secretary got fired. He was opening his own mail and got my letter. He called me and I was being a chaperone at my sister's, she was a teacher and I was on a chaperone on one of her trips. And I come home and my mom's like, do you know a Dale? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know any Dales. She's like a Dale Ratterman from the Indiana Pacers. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, he called you. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So he winds up calling and I'm repeating on the phone what he's telling me on the phone and my mom is standing there. He goes, well, you know, are you interested in moving down here? You know, it doesn't pay, but there's benefits. And I'm like, okay, and there's benefits. And my mom's like, go, go, go. I'm like, shut up. And I'm like, well, I'd like to come down and have an interview. And he goes like, okay. So drove down there on May 22nd of 1991 for the interview. And in the meantime, he contacted the newspaper I worked at. And it just so happened, the assistant sports editor, his name was Bill Green. He used to be a sports editor in Illinois, University of Southern Illinois, or something like that. Well, Dale was like the PR person for the university or something. So they knew each other. That's great. <laughs> Dale had no idea that Bill worked there. He called and Bill answers the phone. 
and Dale's calling to get a reference about me. <laughs> and Bill's like, Dale, it's Bill. I'm like, oh my God, what's up? And so Bill knew I wanted to quit. And so Bill basically talked Dale into hiring me before Dale even met me <laughs> because Bill knew what a good worker I was. And so it really was a miracle. So I go down there and I have the interview and, you know, my mom's like, whoa, she drove me down there and I got the job. And in two weeks I was leaving. My mom and I are driving down to Indianapolis and we're listening to WGN radio. Bulls are celebrating their championship in Grand Park. And I'm going, I can't believe I'm leaving Chicago to go to Indianapolis. The Bulls are celebrating. You know, who knew that they would become the dominant team of the 90s? It was just so surreal listening to the championship celebration and going to Indianapolis. Like, I never thought I'd leave the region, which is what they call Northwest Indiana. But, you know, it was the best decision I'd ever made. And from then on, I was bound and determined to get Pacers fans in Northwest Indiana. But the problem is, is that in the NBA, there's um, territories broadcast wise. You can only go so many miles around. I forget what the mile radius is. So Indianapolis could not broadcast in Northwest Indiana because it's covered by Chicago's radius. Mm. So the Pacers fans are either in Northeast Indiana by Fort Wayne or in the South. So that's why Chicago had such a hold on Northwest Indiana because you would not hear about the Pacers. They were part of Southern. So you have the Cavaliers, obviously, in Cleveland. But if you think about it, they don't cover Cincinnati. Indiana more covers Cincinnati. So, yeah, so we had more Kentucky fans, you know, because Kentucky didn't have a team. We would have more maybe Southern Illinois fans than we would Northwest Indiana fans because Chicago dominated that area. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because um, in some of the videotapes, showing my age there, some of the videotapes that I've got from games that were recorded live at the time on TV, it often has a, like I think it's WTHR, I think is the station name, a station ID occasionally pops up and it usually says Indianapolis. Yes. And I'm always thinking, hang on, it's Indianapolis, but it's a Chicago game and it makes perfect sense. So yeah. what a fortuitous number of events had to work in your favor for that to even come to be as far as that position goes. And then the contrast of driving away from Chicago area heading towards Indianapolis as the Bulls are celebrating at the same time. I've been through a lot since that drive down to Indianapolis in my personal life and in professional life as well. But, you know, I've been so blessed because to have everything fall into place that has, as it's fallen into place, it really is just a blessing. And I tell everybody all the time, it was a lentil sacrifice. I got the job because I prayed. <laughs> like a lentil sacrifice. I'm sending my resume and it was the last resume. I was like, I decided oh, so I'll send it out. And I sent to put it in the mail because at the time you had to mail it, you know, type it up on a typewriter. There was no computers that you use like that. And so I typed it up on a typewriter and I sent it out. And ironically, this is the funniest thing is like, I'm really anal when it comes to spelling and grammar. And I got more of this. So when I was working at the Pacers, I became the proofreader of the company. Anything the company put out, I had to read. I spelled Dale's name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> did he pick that up or did you eventually? Oh, no, he told me. <laughs> but the great thing is, is that I'm still in touch with Dale. He does puzzle books now. He's long retired. He actually lives in Florida. So he was my first boss at the Pacers. And so I've actually done puzzle books for him. I design them. And it's all because of my experience from the Pacers learning graphic design. I designed the media guide. And so just learning design. And then he knows how I work. He knows I'm committed. He knows I'll get it done. So I haven't done one in a bit. The most recent book that I worked on was the Cubs book on Joe Madden, the year in 2016. 
Dale has a sports author who was writing a book on Joe Madden. And the guy who was designed the book could not be found. And the author wanted some last minute additions to the book before the World Series started. Because who knew the Cubs were going to go to the World Series? So the week of the World Series, literally, Dale calls me. Hey, can you do this work? I'm like, I think I can. Sure. <laughs> I came in for the save is what I added in that credits of the book. <laughs> I came in for the save. But literally was a book on the Cubs, Joe Madden. And here is comes how full circle. Like, I wanted to work for the Cubs. I worked on a book about Joe Madden, about the Cubs, <laughs> as they were playing in the World Series. That must have been a massive thrill for you. Oh, it was awesome. Uh, 2016 was good. <laughs> you mentioned about the team media guides and things. I know that you're responsible as well for uh, helping produce game programs and whatnot. What do you sort of recall about that process of putting those together and what technology at the time were you relying on to get those made back in the sort of early to mid-1990s, do you recall? Um, the Pacers had a newsletter, but they stopped production of it because of cost. Print newsletter. Those are six-page little flimsy thing when I first started. And then they wanted to come up with another way of reaching the fans. And so we had a guy who um, who came in. He had been an intern. He came in and he figured out how to do mass faxes. Using Microsoft Word, um, I developed a fax newsletter. We called it the fifth quarter and came up with the content myself and worked with whoever in the team. It wasn't very easy getting people to work with you to get content. Like you're pulling teeth. <laughs> I did not interview players. I didn't do that. I took phone calls and I did that. So I would say the players probably weren't as responsive as they are now. Players are a lot more responsive, a lot more media savvy, put it that way, because there's so much out there now with social media. I would just do it in Microsoft Word, which is very weird for people to hear that. But <laughs> I did design in Word, which is why now I consider myself a Word guru now, because <laughs> I can do things in Word people have no idea can happen. And so <laughs> I created the first, I don't know if it was the first faxed or only faxed newsletter in the NBA. How cool is that? Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that the other day. And I wonder if that was the only one that we did. Because I don't know if anybody else had that technology or thought to do that. It was a fax newsletter. We had to fax it overnight because it was like 3,000 people. It actually plugged up the phone lines. <laughs> So it took all night long to fax the stupid fax. To send them all off. Yeah, one-page fax. <laughs> How was the response from people, though? Did they enjoy getting information that was very recent? Yeah, it was. It was like a little behind the scenes of people in the office, and then it was like little I, – I still have a copy of every one of them. I can email them to you. I'd love that, actually. I really would. <laughs> That's awesome. I was going to ask you, do you happen to have any left? I'd love to see one. I think I have them all somewhere, and I, I'd have to scan them because I don't obviously have them on the computer. I have them all. Yeah, I can send them to you. It's like I'd love that upcoming schedule. You know, I don't even stupid stuff, but clip art. You know, really chintzy stuff. Because of that, the printer who was a sponsor of the Pacers, he says to my boss and to myself, "You know, Mary Kay, you could just design the media guide in house and save you a lot of money. All you have to do is learn the software." Really? Because yeah, what's the software? It's called Quark. Okay, so 1995, uh, they bought the software. And I started designing the media guide without any knowledge of Quark. <laughs> <laughs> I got the files from the printer and I had one class with the head designer at the printer. She sat with me and taught me some stuff. So I literally did the media guide. I worked every day in the summer of 1995 because I had no idea what I was really doing, but I was saving the company money. 
Wow. I literally put the media guide together. And from then on, that's why a lot of people might think I'm a graphic designer. I don't consider myself a graphic designer because I didn't go to school for it. But I prefer to be more like a desktop publisher or something like that because I like doing books. I like putting things together. So because of that, I then started doing more computer work, not necessarily in Quark, though. It still was just the media guide. But more in Word, I would do ticket flyers, like sales flyers and stuff like that. And started doing more and more of those things. And as my skills got better in Quark, I would do more like coupons or banners or stuff like that. And then ultimately, we switched over to Adobe products because Quark and Adobe InDesign are competitors. Mm-hmm. I had to learn Adobe InDesign. And I went to a few courses that the team paid for to go to like some day courses local computer learning centers. So I learned InDesign, Photoshop, and Illustrator, and Acrobat all through those one-day courses, and then just going and doing it more and more. And it's because of all that that created ultimately the publications department. I guess you're adding more and more strings to your bow at the same time. Exactly. As your LinkedIn profile refers, you're a Jackie of all trades. Yes, I am a Jackie of all trades. So (laughs) I can do it all. So Funny thing is people say, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to, you know, I recently lost my job. It's, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I really don't know what I want to do because I had my dream job. I had my dream job. I was so fortunate to have my dream job as my first job, first real job. And I had it for 16 years. Since I lost that job, I was like, gee, I don't know what I want to do. I want to do, I want to put things together. I want it so I can do a lot of stuff. I don't know what I want to do. Yeah, it's the hard part. Yeah, you've got a lot of skills and a lot of uh, real-world applications for things that you've done and actually just taken on, as you've learned it, you've just done it and implemented things. So it sounds like you've uh, got plenty of talent there. So hopefully that job search comes to an end really soon. Yes, I hope so too. It has really taken me far. You know, I still have actually just this last week, one of my former bosses, her name is Kathy, she reached out to me to put something together. So the people I worked with actually continued to contact me for stuff. That's great. But I do freelance work for people. I alluded to this in the intro. Uh, in 1995, speculation of Michael Jordan's NBA return was increasing. And on March 18, a two-word fax, I'm back, sent the world into a spin. Now, researching for this chat, I read a great article by Bill Benner, who just so happens to be the brother of Pace's Director of Media Relations, David Benner. Can you just talk us through the frenzy that followed Jordan's fax in terms of what you, David, and Tim, uh, Tim Edwards, experienced in the 24-hour frenzy prior to the Bulls Pacers blockbuster on NBC? On that weekend, because when you're in media relations, you work, like if you have a Sunday game, you work on Saturday. So you prepare Saturday. This was back then. Things might be a little different now. But you would go in on Saturday morning, and Tim who was the assistant, he would write game notes and you prep the game notes for the media. What I would do is copy all the articles from the previous two weeks because this was pre-internet. Yeah. So they had to know what was being said about the team and just getting some background on the team. So the previous two weeks of clippings, make copies and then copy the notes. And then we make up little media packets. After your last thing of the day on Saturday is that you deliver the media packets to the hotel where the media staying. So if it's a TV game, a national TV game, you have all the crew, meaning the announcers, the producer, director, a bunch of people, like say 15 packets. Then you have 
the visiting team packets, which if it's a big city like Chicago, they had the Sun-Times, the Tribune, you had the littler papers, maybe the TV stations. And in this case, in this particular game, it wasn't a big game because Jordan wasn't returning at the time. You know, so it's a small contingency. And then you have to deliver packets to the beat writers, the visiting TV, and then TNT or NBC, in this case, NBC. So I roll out of bed because I think we had a game Friday. So you're tired as hell anyway from the day before. <laughs> you, roll, you roll out of bed and you just go into work. I didn't take a shower. I'm just going to put on jeans and a sweatshirt and go into work, right? I'm going to be there for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be. I literally got there probably at 10 o'clock. My boss, David, was at practice. The team at the time practiced off-site. So we were at Market Square Arena, and they actually practiced. I think that was at Park Tudor. I think it was Park Tudor, which is a like a private school in Indianapolis on the more north side. He was at practice. Tim and I were in the office. And I think it was about 10 to 11, 10 to 12. can't remember which one. The phone rang. And there was rumors. You know, whatever. Oh, God. And Tim and I are like, oh, man, that'll suck if he's coming back, you know, and uh, <laughs> whatever. But then the phone rings and I see it's a 312 area code. Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. So I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you usually don't talk to the visiting team by phone. You know, you just don't. No real need. I mean, maybe David would talk to Tim. Hell, him. Chicago's PR guy. So maybe David and Tim would have talked, but there wasn't really any reason for me to talk to the visiting team, PR people, because you already know what hotel they're staying at, because you send in advance, you send the travel list. So I go, hello, and you know, I say, hey, it's Tim. I go, what's up? And I said, don't tell me. <laughs> he said, well, I said, don't even tell me. <laughs> and I swear to God, these are words that don't even tell me. He goes, well, <laughs> forget what words he said. Seriously. I was like, oh, <laughs> so then I called David and I'm like, he's coming back. <laughs> what? So, yeah, Tim just called. They're going to be announcing it, you know, in an hour or so. Uh, so I was like, oh. So then we had a little bit of time. Oh my God, it was just such a nightmare because your typical TV game is a lot of credential, national TV game. You have the entire crew, which is like, could be 60 people. And, you know, back then you, you had to string each credential by hand, which you still do. You string them by hand. You have to cut the string. We had a ball of string. Cut the string. Put the string through the little hole. Make it so they can just tie it onto themselves. And so it's a big game anyway when it's a national TV game. So then the phones start ringing. <laughs> it's nonstop. Nonstop telephone ringing and there's still only three of us in the office oh. because david had just returned tim and i were still there expecting not to be there that long so then it's just an onslaught of phone calls and at the time we required people to send their media requests via fax email wasn't really prevalent back then and so the fax machine's going off you know you can hear it <laughs> ringing it's like oh my god and then the phone numbers were in sequential order. So say my number was like, say, 2852. David's was 2851 and Tim's was 2853. The next person's was 2854, then, two, you know, down the hallway. So we're only three of us still in the office and all the phones starting to ring because people <laughs> couldn't get through to us because we were on the phone talking to media. Oh, they just tried the next digit and so on. Yeah. 
Exactly. So they just kept ringing. The whole office kept ringing. So eventually some more ticket people started coming in. And then the building people, which is a real miracle of it, they had to come in because they had to figure out where to put all these media people within less than 24 hours. Marcus Square Arena was not a very roomy place. I mean, this is not a luxury building like we have nowadays. And they never had had playoffs, really, except for the previous years, you know, because we had already been to the finals the previous year. So they kind of knew where media could sit because you have to put the media somewhere. Then you have to reseat those people that have tickets in those seats. What happens during the playoffs is that there's a section that is reserved for the media during the playoffs. So you don't sell those tickets to the public because they're media seats. Well, in this case, those seats are sold to the public. Mm. So where are you going to put the media if those seats are already sold to the public and moving people around? And, you know, every arena has like um, obstructed seating. So like maybe you have a seat and there's a cameraman in front of you. So there's always empty seats, but you don't really know that. There's always a seat available when they say, oh, it's sold out. There's always a seat available. So they were filling every seat in the world. (laughs) because think about all the players who want tickets both visiting and home you have all the staff you have all the dancers you had everybody wanted to get into that game let alone the media let alone the illegitimate media because then the dot-coms weren't really anything (laughs) so you had all these dot-coms wanting to come (laughs) literally i was reading those articles you sent what happened is my co-worker kelly who was in community relations, she sat behind me, our desks were back to back. She called, she goes, do you need help? Yes. <laughs> so she <laughs> came in to help string credentials. And my youngest brother, who ironically is on the stack crew now, he's on the Pacer stack crew. <laughs> he was coming down because I was from Northwest Indiana outside of Chicago. He was coming down, you know, just to see the game. He, he doesn't even like the Bulls. He's a Lakers fan. <laughs> so he literally was just coming down to see the game. And he couldn't get into my house because I had the key and I didn't expect to be at the office the whole time. Ah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) He came to the office and he was working. He started screaming (laughs) credentials. While you're here, you might as well help me out. Yeah. Okay. So him and Kelly (laughs) and me are sitting on the floor and phones ringing and Tim doing what he has to do because then let alone the bull side, they had to do a bunch of changing too. Yeah. Update the game notes. They had all this media onslaught on their end. It was really a full nightmare. I think I got home like one or two in the morning. David, I know, got home at after three because he was mostly busy. So we were dealing mostly with the media requests, Tim and I, whereas David was doing that, but he also had to deal with the arena people and setting up the arena so they could handle the media onslaught. Like the one article says, we literally took care of what would be normally an NBA finals game within less than 24 hours. Which is remarkable. It really is. I remember I was on the court because my job before the games was passing out VIP tickets and credentials. Uh, at Market Square Arena on the third floor, that's the, was the, where the media entrance was. But that's also, it was just a folding table, two chairs and a folding table. That's all it was. <laughs> I had the credentials and my friend, Kelly, she did the VIP tickets. So we kind of did both, like if it got busy. So the VIP tickets were anybody from one of the former ABA players to some car salesman and, you know, who the coach wanted to come, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like usually player tickets, pick player girlfriends and wives and sometimes both and, you know. 
<laughs> I so, can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One sits here and one sits over on that side. <laughs> you know, so that's what the VIP tickets were. So I was always outside of the arena as the arena, the players were practicing and shooting pregame. I enjoyed actually, that was my favorite part was the VIP credential table. That's how I got to know a lot of the visiting scouts from the teams like Terry, Terry Stotts, who's a, was with the Sonics at the time. He was a Sonics uh, scout. So I got to know him and I got to know some other scouts, like actually Eric Polstra, Miami Heat's coach. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, right. He was a scout. And so I got to know him a lot better. And Tony DeLeo, he was with Philadelphia. Jeff Nix, he was with the Knicks. Now he just got a job with the uh, Timberwolves. So there's a lot of scouts that I got to be friends with because I would talk to them all the time. I remember that day at Jordan's game, you know, it was crazy busy. It was crazy busy. It's so hard to explain. I remember going out to the court because what had happened, a lot of times people would come up to the table and say, oh, so-and-so left me tickets. And this is like, say, the visiting team player. So say, John Schmo left me tickets. And John <laughs> Schmo was like the star player, okay? Mm-hmm. So like, um, okay, so you try to get their PR person on the radio. Or you get someone from your staff to get to that person to find out where, well, okay, that was impossible because there was so much going on. So I remember going out to the court to go look for Tim or whoever, I don't even know who it was, but I remember I went all the way to the back to look. It was like in the back where the Bulls team was. I remember coming out from the tunnel, which is what we call the tunnel area behind the basket. And I'm coming out and I'm like, I literally came out through the stream of media <laughs> that the team was about to come through. I was like, holy <laughs> you don't have like any sense of time when you're doing stuff like that and like when the team's coming out and they play the music but i can remember i turned around and i'm like oh my god there's all these media like lining up to take jordan's video of him coming out of the tunnel you know it's like "Ah, i gotta do all of that for everybody then i went back to my table and did what i had to do and then worried about the game later I guess it's like um, you have your role to play, and sometimes the game takes a back seat. Oh, it does. Whilst you have to do all of the uh, all the behind the scenes things that actually make the event happen. <laughs> That's the whole thing. The people don't realize. The people watching the game don't realize that there's hundreds of people that are working the game, and you have no idea. And on holidays, on Christmas, when the people are playing, and you're at home watching the game at Christmas, or the Lakers had played every Christmas. There are staff members who never had a Christmas. They are working the game. So you're really, your coworkers become your family because you're spending the holidays with your coworkers. All that activity at Market Square Arena back in March of 95 flowed on from just those two words on a fax to saying, I'm back. And that led to all that mayhem behind the scenes, which no one really even knows much about to this day until, until really now. Yeah, we had a, a local TV station come in. That was the other thing. You just didn't have sports people. You had news crews. So you had, say, five stations in, in, in Chicago. You had your ABC affiliate, NBC, yeah, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Not at the time, it wasn't Fox. I don't know. might have been. But so all of them wanted to send a news crew. So you're not just doing not only one sports guy, but like two sports guys. Same with the newspapers. They weren't just sending one sports beat writer. They were sending the columnist. They were sending their front page news editor or news, you know, news person. So there was not just sports people coming. This was the hugest story in the NBA in forever up until the balance and the pellets. And so <laughs> this was the hugest thing. True. There was every beat writer in the country also was there to cover that. You know, so it was everybody coming. So then you had photographers, a whole nother thing. Wild times, hey? Wild times. 
what they did and get everything set up, the building people were amazing to get the the post-game press conference room set up because it was back what we called backstage, which was just behind the one side of the, the seats. But it wasn't a very big area. It's what we used during the playoffs to do post-game interviews. But it wasn't big, like I said, like compared to buildings nowadays. And then the press room was really small. The press room was really tiny. It was duo purpose. It, you eat in the press room before the game. There's food in the press room, and then they clear the food out, and that's the press comes in. But it was, it was just packed. I mean, you couldn't even move in it. I've seen footage of it, the press conference, and you see Jordan up there at the table, and it sort of zooms back a bit, and you can see all the press, and they're just all in there like sardines, basically. Yeah, it, it really was that. And it was really like, oh, my God. <laughs> the thing is, and it's not like well-ventilated. So then you're even hot. <laughs> it's just like, oh. But the thing is, usually in those press conferences, there may be like five people, you know, at a post-game <laughs> press. You don't have post-game press conferences for regular games. Where the Pacers are now, they do have a press, you know, a interview room. And But if you're like watching Nate McMillan do a post-game interview, there's really five people there asking questions. It really was actually a good thing because it was those instances like this game that really made David know what was needed in the new building. Like, okay, we need to have, like, same with even the playoffs, getting prepared for the playoffs and the unexpected onslaught of when we went to the conference finals in 94. In 93, 94, you want to talk about unexpected, going to the Eastern Conference Finals? Holy crap. We thought the Jordan thing was bad. That was a one-day thing, right? <laughs> yeah. But during the 93-94 season, when we weren't expected to do that, and none of us had experience at all. And that was David's first year being a media relations director. We had no idea. And the thing was, the whole staff had no idea. No one knew what to do during the Eastern Conference Finals, so we're winging it. <laughs> and when we were at Market Square Arena, they had very few phone lines coming into the building. So people were trying to call for tickets and they couldn't get in because there was no phone lines. Oh my God, our people couldn't even call out. Our ticket sellers were trying to call people to give them, sell them tickets or even say, hey, we got, it was crazy. And I got to tell you, those are those, some of the most fun times because the day Byron hit that shot in 94 in Orlando, oh, it was the beginning of the change of the franchise. Open Byron Scott for He hit that shot and it was like, yes! And it was just, <laughs> it was just a lot of fun. And at the time, we only had pretty much 50 people on staff. It was like a family. Unfortunately, as the team grew into a, the newer building, it became larger and the family atmosphere just wasn't there anymore. You were also setting up interviews and, and photo sessions as well with team personnel. Do you have a, either a memorable, uh, funny or, or otherwise uh, moment that might spring to mind from doing that sort of stuff? Um, the interviews, not so much because David did a lot of the, the setting up of interviews. I can remember when Byron Scott came to the team. Byron Scott was a wonderful human being. I thought he would be some kind of jerk because he was coming from California. <laughs> One of those Showtime Lakers, yeah. <laughs> I really did. I was like, oh, he's a Lakers. He's <laughs> L.A. He was so awesome. He was one of the nicest guys on the team. And I remember had to accompany him to one of the local TV stations, uh, Sunday night show, Sunday night sports show. And 
it was so weird. He had never been on TV. All this LA stuff, you would think he would have been behind the scenes. He had no idea about a news desk and how they have the little TV in the, in the table and they could see, you know, they have a little monitor and he had no idea. So it was so cool going with a guy who you thought was this big, ooh, and he was <laughs> so cool and nervous. And that was so neat going with him to the TV interview. And you just sat there and listened to him talk. You know, you don't do anything. You just have to be there just to make sure nothing happens. So that was the one time uh, accompanying him. Another time was accompanying Dale Davis on a on an interview to the same like TV station, nighttime, Sunday night, you know, talk show, whatever. And we're in a limo. And I'm like, I'm sitting in a limo. This is so weird. You know, never in my life did I ever think I'd be sitting in a limo with an NBA player. Bizarre. So, you know, so it's kind of neat. And then the funny thing with the photo shoots, I worked with the team photographer a lot. And so every photo shoot, it was came in tradition that I always took one photo of just myself, like where the team would be sitting, because we never sat in the same place. So wherever the team was going to be, then I'd always be the subject to shoot before the team came up. So I have a bunch of pictures of me pre-team photo. Like, this is team <laughs> photo, and it's just me. <laughs> the funniest thing, I think it was my last year, Dale came back because Dale had gotten traded. Dale Davis had gotten traded, but he had come back to play for the Pacers in the 2005, 6, or 7, like at the end of my career at the Pacers. They had a photo shoot. Everybody was there except Dale. And I was like, seriously? Dale's been here before. He knows, you know, so online portfolio. I have a photo manipulation. So because Dale wasn't there and we needed to take a team photo, I said, okay, hold on to my boss, David. He would always set up the team. I said, stand where Dale's going to stand. So they set up the team and I have this picture. I'll send you, I could send you the, uh, hold on. Hold on. Let's see if you can see that. Okay. It's just loading up. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. <laughs> I literally had David stand in the middle of where Dale would stand. Oh, that's awesome. All the players were cracking up because they're like, what are you doing? I said, just, uh. just stand there. So then I had to cut it out and then I had to put Dale in because Dale then came in late that day and I told the team photographer, just put Dale right there. Okay. So when Dale comes in, just have him stand right there. That's where he's going to be. So the whole thing was set up. And even if you look at the bottom picture on that page. I'm looking at it right now. It's amazing. That's fantastic. <laughs> no wonder you've got photo manipulation as one of your skills. That's, that's absolutely outstanding. All the way down to his feet. So I said, <laughs> yeah, I could do it. It could work. So it worked. It was perfect. <laughs> oh, man, that is so good. Do you mind if I share that? It's my digital resume. Get me out there. Get me a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll do what I can. I love it. <laughs> They say that a picture says a thousand words. That says about twenty five thousand. So yeah, people don't realize, and that is the official team photo, by the way. So if you were in the arena and you'd see the official team photo of that season, no one would ever know that Dale wasn't there. No, he just looks like one of the other players lined up, ready to have their shot taken. That is so good. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, very impressive, Mary Kay. I like that. Thank you. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> Claim to fame. Right there. <laughs> yeah, that is really good. There's my photo memory. This might be a loaded question, so feel free to maybe avoid it. But is there some particular favorite paces that you've dealt with over the years that you really enjoyed working with? Well, Byron, of course, was one of my favorites. And then Dale. Dale and I came at the same time. He was the first draft pick. So I call him my first draft pick. <laughs> June 19th was my first day. And Dale came at the end of June. So Dale and I had always had a bond between the two of us. 
I also like Dwayne Farrell was very nice. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Michael Williams, he was very nice. He was there only for like first years because Chuck and him got traded. He and Chuck Person. Chuck was a nice guy. You know, most of the guys are really nice. Some of them are really reserved. Um, I like Rick Smith was always very nice. Um, you know, Jeff Foster, Austin Crozier, Travis Best, all very, very nice guys. Reggie was nice in his own way. He's very, very quiet. People don't know that about Reggie, but he's a very quiet guy. I really dealt a lot more with the coaching staff and um, with photos and bios. And I love most of the coaches as well. Um, you know, Dan Burke, still there. He's a great guy. David Craig was the head trainer when I was there. Another wonderful person. So there's just a lot of guys that come in and out, you know. And I realized the first trade that I dealt with was with Chuck Person. And Chuck was my first favorite player. And when that trade happened, you realized that the players are really just a name on a file folder. That's all they are. They come and go. So I just commend all the guys that stay on a team like Reggie. I love that he stayed with the Pacers for the entire career because there's just something to say about that. That's why I hated that that LeBron left Cleveland. So it's like, really? You know, it's like, just stay. And so I can't even imagine being an NBA player and being a journeyman at that, being on so many teams and you know, what the wife goes through. I can't even imagine what the kids go through. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of former players who are more of the journeyman type and they're the ones that often have a great story, but they have to put up with a lot and uh, a lot comes with it. And basically, as you said, it comes down to sometimes just being a business more than actually uh, the sport itself, unfortunately. Another player I forgot to, Antonio Davis was very, very nice as well. Um, And then, of course, Larry Bird is a coach. He's a nice guy. He's just a down-home Indiana guy. You can't get any better than that. Rick Carlisle, nice guy, very unique and different, but very nice. I got to admit, he he was a nice guy, could talk about anything. In terms of opposition players that came into Market Square Arena, I know that you said that you uh, had a role in setting up some post-game radio or TV conversations with these players. Did any players sort of stand out as far as making an impression on you? I can't even remember a lot of them, but Rick Fox was very nice. And I can remember walking out from the tunnel to the radio sidelines where he had to go to, and I'm walking with him. And I was like, all these girls are screaming, Rick, Rick. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm pretty lucky right now. I said something <laughs> like that to him because I was like, he's kind of good looking after all. It's like, I don't even know what I said, but he's like going, who is this person? You know, they don't know who I am. You know, there are people who who would recognize me. So like, say, because we played them so often, like Patrick Ewing, he wouldn't know my name, but he would recognize me because of me being just around. You know, they recognize players are very observant. If they want to know someone in the stands, they'll know someone in the stands. <laughs> They're very observant. <laughs> I really enjoyed like the visiting, like you say, the coaches and the the scouts that were kind of part of the coaching staff and stuff like that. In 1998, the Bulls and the Pacers, they met in the Eastern Conference Finals. So how was it for you? You're working with the Pacers, I think, for about six or seven seasons by that stage, having grown up as a Bulls fan. What did you make of that whole series and how fondly do you remember it when you look back on it now, even though the Pacers came up just short, of course? Quickly after starting with the Pacers, I became a Pacers fan and no longer a Bulls fan. So that was definitely something that changed. When the team is paying you, (laughs) want them to win. Again, it was really a family. I really enjoyed my first years there. The years at Market Square Arena were very special. The 
wildest thing about the playoffs in May in Indianapolis is that no one ever, and this happened before that year, no one ever anticipated having an NBA playoff game the same weekend of the Indianapolis 500. Mm. You want to talk about massive media. Add on top of that, the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. Add on top of that, my family comes to Indianapolis every year for the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> so Was one of the games in Indiana on the day of the 500? Uh, yes. Because even back here in Australia at the time, I remember the Indianapolis 500 would still get airtime on TV here in Australia just when it was on. So I can only imagine the, the craziness that would have been involved in the state <laughs> on those days. Because it had been where the race is on Sunday, always on a Sunday, the Memorial Day weekend. So the Indianapolis 500 is always then. The NBA, you have their schedule in advance, the playoff schedules. You have to have open dates just in case your team gets there. Depending on where you land, you'll have a home game or visiting. You don't know. Well, the home games, you would have a game on Saturday, the Indianapolis 500, and then the game on Monday, Memorial Day. So that whole weekend, you not only have a contingency of media coming in for the race, they also are there now to cover the game. Mm. So you have double even media coming in for the games, that the playoff games. In that particular sense, the Bulls, you not only have all the Chicago fans coming down to Indianapolis to get tickets because they want to see the Bulls win, let alone all the Jordan fans that are around the freaking country. And then <laughs> you got the Indiana fans, you know, and then the media-wise, and then, of course, my family, which I'm from a very large family. <laughs> so they're all like, we want tickets. And so, you know, you when you're in the office, and I don't know how much it's changed now, but in the front office, you filled out a form and you want you always have to buy tickets. You don't get free tickets, except staff got two free tickets. But if you wanted extra tickets, you would have to buy those tickets, especially when it came to playoffs. So, you know, I want 14 tickets. <laughs> what? <laughs> so they're all over the arena, you know? <laughs> They're inside, at least. They're in the arena. And they were at the game <laughs> that Jordan pushed Reggie. That's what I like to say. <laughs> so they were at that game. My family was at that game. That was a crazy finish, wasn't it? Wow. That was incredible. McKee gets it in the middle for the win. It's Four tenths of a second. One of the greatest clutch playoff performers of his generation has apparently done it again. That was some great timing, the excitement and just, you know, we had so much fun in the office. And and by then, half of my family was Pacers fans. My mom was a Pacers fan. You know, even Jordan was on the team. They still were morphing into Pacers fans. So it was a really <laughs> great time to switch over a lot of the Chicago fans to Pacers fans. So I was proud of myself. It's hard to change allegiances, so you've done well. I read a great 1998 article about your push to have Pacer greats Mal Daniels and Roger Brown recognised for their outstanding contributions in the ABA. Now, the Pacers were one of four teams that were absorbed into the NBA when the leagues merged. How did you go about raising awareness for Roger and Mal and their respective cases for a very well-deserved place in the Basketball Hall of Fame? I didn't know anything about the ABA when I started the Pacers. And then I learned about that and the history. And I care about the ABA and that they get the respect that they deserve. That's why in the article where it mentioned me spearheading the whole Hall of Fame push, you don't know how much that made me feel because not many people know that. And I spearheaded it during the lockout year of 90... 98, 99. Yeah, we had nothing to do. 
in the summertime, you're like, okay, we need something to do. They said, oh, you're not going to lose your jobs. Don't worry. But there was a potential of maybe losing the job because of money, you know. Mm. My thing was, you know, these guys need to get in the Hall of Fame. So it really, I started with Roger and Mel trying to get those two in the Hall of Fame. Really, Roger, because he, he had passed away. He just passed away maybe in 1997 or thereabouts. 96, because my dad died in 95, and I remember Roger died a year after. And so my goal was to get them in the Hall of Fame. When Mel got nominated, I was from afar crying. I was so proud. And so when Mel died, when I flew up for Mel's funeral, my coworker, Tim, who there were three of us in our department, there was David, Tim, and myself. Tim, he goes, you know, that's all because of you. And I said, thank you. No one knows. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? No one knows that. Mel knew, you know, he knew because you have to get a bunch of letters from people. So I was calling people up like Artist Gilmore. That's a story. The A-Train, yeah. Okay. I grew up watching Artist Gilmore, right? Oh, he's a former bull too. Correct. I was watching Artist Gilmore as a Bulls fan. Then years later, I have to contact Artist Gilmore to get a letter of recommendation from Mel for the Hall of Fame. So I leave a message and then I get a phone call at work. Hi, this is Artist Gilmore. I'm like, oh my God, this is so weird. <laughs> I'm like, talking to Artist Gilmore. This is so bizarre. You know, and I'm like, oh, I used to watch you play. You know, it's just so weird. You're like, surreal moment. But you have to reach out to people to get letters. So reaching out to old coaches and people that historically, if you like NBA or basketball, you know these names. It was quite an interesting journey. And this was the first time they resubmitted it years later. The first time I started working on it, I think it was even before 99, because I started in 91. So I'm almost positive I started it before Roger died, because I remember talking to Roger about it. And I told him, I'm going to get you in there. But it was it was worth every every minute I spent. I was very proud of that. And just for context, Mel Daniels was enshrined in 2012, and Roger Brown, 2013, in terms of their entry to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, how about the 2000 NBA Finals? Um, Jordan has obviously retired in 98. The Pacers make the finals in 2000 against the LA Lakers. What was it like being with a team that was hosting finals games and, uh, and just being a part of that? It was an incredible time. When they won in New York to make it to the finals, uh, a core of us at the, the office, at that time we were already moved into the new building, Conseco Fieldhouse. That year was crazy. It was crazy. Moving into a new building and having the finals, and having a new WNBA team, and having the world championships. Uh-huh. It was a busy, <laughs> busy year. It was it was crazy. I remember watching the game at the Fieldhouse with my staff, because we knew after the game, if we'd won, we were going to have to get some work to do. Because you don't have much time between games to get things done. There's a lot of work that goes on, especially during the playoffs. You have to prepare so much for the media. Now, back then, it was a little different. I mean, granted, email was a little bit more prevalent, you know, in 2000 and and stuff. But there's still packets that you have to get ready and things you just have to prepare. The ticket people have to prepare seats for season tickets. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. There's so much to do in between games. You you thank God when it's a game day because you're like, you know, you could kind of breathe (laughs) because there's so much to do leading up to games. We were all at the arena watching the game, and we were just going crazy. We were outside screaming, and, you know, it was, Indianapolis was crazy. Uh, people honking their horns, and, oh, my God, it was awesome. <laughs> then we went over to the uh, uh, airport, which 
was a nightmare getting to the airport, but we wanted to be there when the team arrived. So it was kind of neat being all part of that. And, I, you know, it's just, it was very unique. And then just being part of the whole playoffs and all the celebrities. And the funniest thing was throughout the whole time of the 90s, you know, we always had TNT or NBC would call us and say, what celebrities are coming to the games? What celebrities do you have? Because they, you know, how they shoot away and take shots. Yeah. Well, we're like, um, no one. <laughs> we didn't have any celebrities <laughs> in Indianapolis. <laughs> Our celebrities were race car drivers. And they're like, <laughs> who's that? Oh, no. Let's give me a Tony Stewart. Oh, Tony Stewart, you know, or was a Colts player. So Marshall Falk, I don't know, you know, because that's who our celebrities were. We're Colts players and race car drivers. That's it. We had, oh, John Mellencamp came to some games. Oh, there you go. He's a Pacers fan. And we had, well, Mike Epps now is a big fan. He's a huge Pacers supporter. He's from Indianapolis. So Mike Epps is the celebrity there all the time now. Back then, I don't even think he was known. Like one of my favorite memories working that credential table was, you probably do not know who this is because you are from Australia. But growing up, there was a TV show on and a guy named Soupy Sales, some wacky guy that I remember as a kid. I would always look through the envelopes of who might be coming, right? Because like, who? <laughs> and I could not believe it was Soupy Sales. <laughs> I'm just Googling the name right now to see who it is. There you go. You're not going to know who it is. The name doesn't sound familiar, but I'll see if I don't. Okay. No, I've, no, I'm not familiar with that gentleman. No. I forget. I don't even know how I knew him, but my friend Kelly's like going, <laughs> who is this guy? I'm like, he's so many sales. <laughs> <laughs> it says here, American comedian. I was a little girl when I knew, you know, knew of him. The best memory, though, and I got to admit on this one, is that uh, during the Knicks playoffs, you know, Spike Lee and Reggie, they had that banter going between each other. Yeah. Well, at one time, <laughs> we were playing the Knicks at home, and my boss's phone rang. So I answered the phone, and he says, hi, uh, this is Spike Lee. Can I talk to David Benner? And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, right. You're Spike Lee. <laughs> he goes, yeah, it's me. Is David Benner around? And David, that's who he called to get tickets to the game because you go through the media person a lot of times. So it's the celebrities do that, depending on who they know. So it, it really is just, it's random sometimes. So he started talking more. I'm like, oh, I really think you are him. I'm sorry. <laughs> kind of rude to him. So David got on the phone and it wound up being that Spike was coming to the game and he wanted to come to the game and come behind stage so people wouldn't bother him. And so he wanted to not have to wait in will call. He wanted to get VIP tickets and come to the table because it was easy access. So Spike comes to the table and I'm like, hi. <laughs> he was not happy with me. He, I think he wound up telling David, your assistant's really rude. <laughs> <laughs> thing was I pissed off Spike Lee, but I didn't care <laughs> because I didn't like him because of the whole Reggie him, you know. I, you know, I don't know him. I, Spike could be a nice guy for all I know. I remember walking with him, trying to talk to him. He's like, yeah, you're really rude. I don't even remember what I said, but all I know is that I pissed him off. But, oh, well, <laughs> darn, I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I know you've talked about uh, a lot of different memories and things. Do you have a particular favorite moment or experience uh, or a game that you watched from that time with the Pacers, does something spring to mind? Yeah, I think uh, Byron hitting the shot in Orlando was huge. Um, 
a lot of it, like Rick Smith's hitting the shot against the Magic. Yeah, that was a great finish, wasn't it? Penny Hardaway and him exchanging shots. In it goes out of Hardaway out near the midcourt line, driving on Workman. He forces up the three. He hit it. He hit it. He hit it. He hit it. One and three. Ten seconds to go. Derek looking, looking, can't find an open man. Flips it to the big fella, fake shoots, and hits. But it actually has more sentimental value to me. And then there's a game against the Bulls in Chicago because the game in Chicago in 95 is the last time I saw my dad alive. And it was the first game I ever got him to go to. He never wanted to go to a Bulls game. He hated pro basketball. And he thought there'd be a crowd and he would have to deal with traffic. And I'm like, no, dad. So I flew up with the team and my sister and brother-in-law came with him, drove him from Northwest Indiana to the Bulls game. I said, easy traffic, no, you know, you have parking. It's not a big deal. Just come to the game. So he came to the game and I, you know, got to see him at the game and he sat, um, I have a picture of him sitting behind like a press table. There's a picture of Jordan shooting, but it's not a picture of Jordan shooting. It's a picture of my dad and me sitting at the press table. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah. It's really more meaningful to me. Jordan was wearing 45 at the time. That picture is more important to me than the guy shooting. I could give a, give a crap about that. Totally understand, yeah. Oh, wow. That game Rick shot that shot in the playoffs that year, my dad died the next day. Oh, wow. So that has a lot of memories of that because here I am, you know, can't wait for the next game. And I remember being at home and team was going to Orlando. And this is why Dale Davis means so much to me is because I was at work. I had gone home and saw my dad in the hospital. You know, he was already passed away, but I came back to get some work done because I knew we had work to do. If we had won that game in Orlando, we would have a lot of work to do. And I was going to be out because of the funeral. And so um, I came in the office and Dale wound up calling me at the office, which is not normal. And he's a, he just wanted to see how I was doing. It meant so much to me because he was in Orlando preparing for a big game. And he took time out of his day to call me to see how I was doing. And that, to this day, that's why people always wonder why I like Dale so much. That's one of the reasons I, I respect him so much. He's that nice of a guy. He's really a great guy. And that meant so much to me because he didn't have to do that. In such a tough moment, and I'm really sorry to hear that's how it all went down. But Thanks. for him to show that, that's a classy act uh, in amongst his life. Yeah. But to show the personal side and a human touch, that's really great to hear. Yeah. And, you know, these guys are really just humans. They just happen to be tall and play basketball. But they all go to the bathroom just like we all do. So when people get on players for whatever they're going through, it's a lot different now. People understand mental illness. They understand. But some of these guys come from nothing, absolutely nothing. And they can't get out of that mindset of the entourage and their homeboys. And it's really sad because the ones that do get out of that, they succeed a lot, lot more. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And obviously, that's incredibly personal, but um, I really appreciate you. You're mentioning it, so... Um, my memories are a lot of my personal part of it. And it makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, is there anything else from your time with the Pacers that you'd like to mention? We've covered a, a whole lot of topics here, which has been great. I really appreciate you uh, making time to chat with me today. You know, working with Larry Bird was a phenomenal. Uh, he's a fantastic individual. I was not a Larry Bird fan growing up. I just didn't like basketball. And then meeting him was fantastic. Yeah, you know, he's a very, very nice, genuine guy. A lot of times people want to say things about players or coaches and their 
quiet or mean or rude, but they're just quiet people. They don't know who to trust. He was a great guy. I can remember one time they have a staff workout room where you can work out after work. And I was sitting on the floor stretching before I got on the treadmill. And the team would walk through that that workout room to go to the practice court. It was after hours, so the team wasn't there. I was watching TV and ESPN was on and they had some recap about Bird and probably Magic Johnson. I don't even know. And I was watching it and like watching all these highlights of Larry Bird shooting and all this stuff. And and I stretching and stretching and here comes Larry Bird walking right by me. I'm like, <laughs> that's a really surreal moment. That's exactly the word I was thinking of. Well, that's quite surreal. It really was like, what? Oh, what? Hey, Larry, how you doing? You know, it's like you're on TV right there. You know, it's just so weird. Like, that's that same guy. That's really weird. It was awesome being there when I was. My demise from there, my elimination from there was sad, but I was ready. Uh, to go. And I, I do miss working the events. I do miss being part of something big. I don't miss working all the time because you do work a lot of hours. People who work at NBA teams or football teams, baseball teams, anybody who works behind the scenes of any sport, they work a lot of hours and they don't get paid a lot of money. They do not. People might think they do, but you, you're just a regular worker, you know, not many jobs out there like that. Mm. I'll always tell kids, you know, if you like sports, you don't have to be an athlete. There's a lot of things to do behind the scenes. Same with if you like basketball, you can be a video coordinator. And video coordinators sometimes make it up to coaching. Well, Eric Spolstra, as you said, he went from being a video coordinator and he's head coach of the Heat. So there you go. Exactly. You know, Peter Dinwiddie, who's head of basketball at the Pacers, he started out as an inside sales ticket rep and he was a lawyer. I think he had gone to law school. But he wanted to get in with a team and started out. And nice, fantastic guy, Pete Dinwiddie, and has done a fantastic job with the Pacers. Ryan Carr, who's the head of director of scouting, started out as a video intern. He has a fantastic story. So there's a lot of things that people out there who might be interested in getting into the NBA or to the NFL. Or there's just a lot of thing opportunities, and you don't always have to know someone, but you just have to be in the right place at the right time. Perfectly said. It's been great having a chance to speak with you about your memories of your time working within the NBA and, and I wish you every success going forwards and hopefully that job search comes to an end really quickly. Yes, I hope so too. I'll be posting on LinkedIn when I get a new job, like hallelujah, I got a new job. So hopefully it'll come soon. I can't wait to see that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail, simply visit inallairness.com slash voice, click start recording, leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Worldwide, the show is inching towards 80 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways that you can support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are certainly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Android, Pocket Casts, and more. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.